The thing about finishing a story is that finishing is really only the beginning. A quote from William Herring, author of Tortoises and Shells. Welcome back to Endings for Beginnings, the podcast to help leaders begin planning for a better ending. When people are going through some transition, you can't think your way through. And the Pillars for me um, was the perfect vehicle to help teams that I've worked with feel their way through. It's why we talk about the tricky and messy stuff. It's the emotions. I mean, why we made emotions a pillar. There's just been so many layers of changes, transitions, adjustments to then actually have people sit in a room where people are not saying, I'm fine. How are you? I can't emphasize enough how important I think this work is. It's the bedrock of helping people do transitions well. And really, really being listened to. It sounds really powerful. I'm Alison Lucas. And I'm Lizzie Bentley Bowers. It's great to be back with you to talk more about our work on Endings for Beginnings. In this series of new podcasts, we're excited to share with you how leaders of organisations have been using our work. We hope this will give you some insight into the application of our work in organisations and how it might be useful to you. We're recording at a time of transition for many people. Here in the UK, we are heading towards two years since the pandemic began. And with life shifting again and people transitioning back to offices and a different blend of work and travel than they perhaps had before, there is much that has changed for us all. We'll look today at how paying attention to endings is part of the work of effective transition and how it frees energy, strategic thinking, creativity and focus on the next phase and beyond. We said in the first podcast our intention was to start a conversation about brighter beginnings, so we are thrilled that paying attention to endings has become a reality. Coming up in this episode, we'll be having conversations with some people we've been privileged to work with and alongside as they do that work of creating brighter beginnings by paying closer attention to endings. We'll hear more from our guests about how they've been using our four pillars, reality, emotion, accomplishment and ritual, and have been using them to bring about a successful transition. And we might even sneak in the question we love to ask our clients, which pillar is their (laughs) favourite? Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. From the song Closing Time by Semisonic. Sally Chesman is a seasoned leadership trainer, facilitator and coach of 15 years. She works alongside teams to help them perform better through collaboration and connection. And when we first met Sally, she was working with a team that was going through some tumultuous times. Change never stops in a large organisation and... I'd been working as a team coach um, with them for about four or five months um, when, you know, and that was all about beginnings. And uh, and then another change came along um, that meant that the team, as I knew it and as they knew it, um, was coming to an end. And they wanted me to support them to begin again and uh, looked at a few things, but came across your paper. Um, and when I read it, it just totally resonated it felt right for the team and mostly it felt right for me particularly the messiness and that um it's never the right time for change yeah the tricky and messy stuff is a favorite topic of ours i'd say because it's the bit that whole sort of naming of the reality it's like you say it's so often skipped because well it's happening it's happening all around us so therefore by virtue of being in it people sort of assume they've acknowledged it when actually quite often they haven't fully and they certainly haven't acknowledge the messy stuff yeah it came really from the fact that the ending wasn't my start of my relationship with this team we'd done a lot of work together right setting up um you know how they wanted to work together over the previous five months establishing you know the the sort of the ground rules the vision and uh and when this second change came around the first change they were absolutely instrumental in designing and the second change, they weren't really consulted. It was coming from the parent company. And so it was that great relationship that I'd fostered all that way through that gave me the ability to say, 
Well, before we move into this next phase, there's probably some tying up of loose ends. And I think the leader of the team at the time sort of named it as um, wanting to draw a line in the sand. I think he was very minded to not create in the new team uh, that was being formed as a result of the second change, a team 2.0. He really wanted to, to stop. And whatever came after, for that to be new, both for the team members that stayed with him, but also for the team members that were joining from other places, because, you know, joining an established team is a very different proposition to kind of starting again. Gosh, and I think he wanted that renewal. That is so deeply respectful and um, insightful of that leader and how you were coaching alongside him to say, we're not just going to replicate that team 2.0. What I find really interesting is that having worked along this side this team for a while, the first change you're describing they were instrumental in and how different that felt when actually it was being done to them. And I think so many times leaders don't actually realise that there's always somebody in the system, somebody in the team actually that's not part of the decision making and is being done to and how different it is if you're the architect and you've known for a long time or actually if this is done, like in this example, by the, by the parent company. So tell us more about what, what you then did. So how did you support that, that wise team leader to draw a line in the sand and, and actually really acknowledge what was coming to an end? The first thing was to try and negotiate time to do that well. Mm. Because there's so much demand on people's time in that transition that it's really difficult for them to prioritise themselves. But it was really around designing then the plan to take them through some exercises, relying very much on your four pillars and to to go through it. But um, but the most important thing, I guess, in my mind was to really rely on those relationships that we had already from the other sessions that we'd run. Um, because that container that you have to build in order to have these conversations about some really deep untidy topics um creating that space for that is really the most important thing and work really hard in that session to to draw them in and, and used a lot of different vehicles in that remote working to try and lay the breadcrumbs to allow that to happen there is so much in that i think there's something so interesting in what you're saying because context is king it is so important and actually acknowledging that and then for people to pause because pausing is often scary so subliminally people are often planning to hurry up and get on to the next beginning so actually to have achieved that I think is, is amazing and I think something you just said about the, the container that you created and the fact that you had prior relationships so the trust was there because I think one of the things that Lizzie and I have found through continuing this conversation and bringing the work to our clients and with other coaches is that safety is absolutely paramount. If you're going to take people through the pillars and get them to name their messy stuff and to stand in it and not rush through it and to move on to the emotions and to really think about what they've accomplished both in the ending and before the ending and to find some sort of way of closing is deep, deep work. I think the experience for people in organisations can be um, positive at all costs, including speaking your truth. And you know, for me, part of an overall positive, it, well, for us, it's, it's the naming of everything. That's this why we talk about the tricky and messy stuff. It's, you know, and, and the emotions, I mean, the, why we made emotions a pillar, because it's not, you know, emotions are complicated and there are, we tend to revert to these basic four or five that spring to mind. But that's why we love exploring, you know, re, you know what really is going on for you here and how does that contribute to overall health and well-being an organization and the individuals in it and that doesn't have to mean that everybody feels great about it at any, any given time and I think those two things are often confused yeah, and I think they tell themselves what they should be feeling yeah uh, and, and also the contradiction of emotions that people were feeling at one time you know you can feel excited but you can also feel really guilty you can feel disappointed and hopeful. And there's something about sort of, well, I shouldn't be feeling all of these things at once. You know, well, which am I then? And the, and the answer is you're all of them. So as you took 
the group through the pillars, were there any in particular that you noticed that they found perhaps easier to go towards or were more reluctant to experiment with? The one that um, I think they probably were most reluctant to go is the emotions. Um, Very technical, long serving, where there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer and very much around doing stuff and thinking stuff and not necessarily feeling stuff. So again, in the emotions exercise, I gave them a list of emotions as prompts and said, you know, what you're feeling might not be there, but by all means use that. And it was a very private, uh, reflective exercise with absolutely no um, obligation to share. It was just a quiet, mindful moment for them to to see where they were, to look at the spectrum, to, to actually write down the words that represented what they were feeling in that moment in in the in the session and then to lay them out on the table in front of them in any order that made sense to them and then to look at the extremes and just look at what what comes up when you look at whatever order you've put it in whether it's what you felt first or what you felt last or what felt good and what felt bad um you know i don't think there's a a bad feeling but um but just to look at that spectrum and uh and in the end they they wanted to share and we took stock of what they were feeling at the time and there was only six participants but there was 37 different words that came out and some some were shared and and some weren't you know some were a surprise some were a surprise to the individual and once they started to share it, it, in spite of their own sort of reservations, and that's where they started to ask each other questions about that. And there was huge compassion, you know, real support, real interest, really wanting to support each other with those feelings and recognising that not everybody's like me. I'm really touched listening to that. I, I think there's something about... Um, it sounds extraordinary. Lizzie and I do this work. We share this work. Uh, and to hear you taking this work. And what's your sense, Sally? Because like Ali, I just, I, it, it feels extraordinary to hear the work being used in this way. Having worked with the pillars, what do you believe that it enables for teams or individuals or organisations to work in the way that you've just described? For me, it just it just enables the space to take stock I mean, everything that I I do within the work is about increasing self-awareness. And I just think the world's a very noisy place and we're not always that tuned in. Uh, This isn't about writing a 10-point game plan for how you're going to move myself and my team through the change. It's not about tasks. It's about feeling your way through the change as much as thinking your way through it. And really, really being listened to. And it's back to the, if there is no obligation to make something private, that's more likely people want to share. If there is no sense that we need to move this forward, what we're doing is acknowledging and laying the motions out. Actually, I suspect it emotionally moves them forward. But if we went into something where the outcome is that you will move emotionally forward in the next 10 minutes. Oh, my goodness me. Doesn't that have a different energy? I'm just really interested in the safety that was created through that silent reflection. I feel like there's such a huge prominence of the F word. Mm. I'm fine. (laughs) You know, the F word is used everywhere. And the reality is probably you're not probably you're not fine and there's probably a lot more words that you could use if you really chose to and if part of taking people through these exercises and bringing emotions to the surface particularly in teams that don't do it means that we don't hear the f word anymore and there are some new words that they can use that would be great wouldn't it wouldn't it Charles? that's a great outcome thinking about everybody being fine because what organisations have been through and are still going through as we're we're emerging at the moment is layer upon layer of I'm not fine context, whether or not it is a team restructuring 
also working remotely, also dealing with all of their own personal interaction with what's going on with the pandemic, homeschooling. There's just been so many layers of changes, transitions, adjustments to then actually have people sit in a room where people are not saying, I'm fine, how are you? Yeah. It's brilliant. So avid listeners of our first podcast will know that I revealed potentially having a favourite pillar in that. I did, and I do love the accomplishments part, and I think... Um, Me too. Oh, I could have said, that's Lizzie's favourite. I'm, I'm just going to say right now my favourite's emotions, <laughs> but you two go off on one about accomplishments. Go. But, um, you know, I've done a lot of work with teams, designing team boards, and so accomplishments and successes has been a part of a lot of things that I've done in the past. Um, and it's rarely done well. Sometimes it can just become a list of things that you've ticked off. And when I've encouraged people in the past to to name their successes, it's been a bit like, well, that's what I'm paid for. But the accomplishments in, in, the, um, in the team session using the pillars, um, in recognition that that can be the way that it can go, I started them off again, you know, laying the path out with uh, a space for them to talk about their team achievements. So there's lots of we, and people are a lot more comfortable to talk about what we've done. Um, and so they, they quickly generated a list of things that they'd done together. And then I moved them from there to say, you know, well, what of that? You know, can you say during that time, what can you say that you've done yourself? You know, what are you proud of? What are you grateful for? Um, and you can immediately feel the resistance of, well, nothing, you know, I was just, you know, I was just there, you know, when I, you know, that's what I'm there for. Um, but in this particular exercise, and I think um, it's testament to the closeness of the team, the team members themselves actually started to tell each other what they thought should go on their list because of that time when. And well, you remember, and that's that, that happened and this happened and you should put that down because if you hadn't done that, then I couldn't have done this. And, you know, for, for me as a, a facilitator or as a team coach, when you can just step back and let that happen and they just draw that out from each other um, and you get this beautiful list of things that they're saying meant something to them in that time. Um, that that that's an amazing thing and so many things on that list they could see were things that they weren't going to lose mm. and that is so true because those accomplishments are absolutely part of the fabric of them in whichever way they go forward and it reminds me of a conversation I was having recently with someone in terms of accomplishments being what comes before the ending of whatever the career membership of the team or the organisation and then actually there's the accomplishments of how you have managed the the ending and the transition and they may be two really different things and I think often when the ending is tricky and messy sometimes we can even start to wipe out or forget all the accomplishments that came before. Um, so Lizzie and I have been talking about actually there's, the, the, there's another layer to the favourite accomplishments pillar that we need to be really teasing out i think at the initial just to just to include this sense because there was a second change that came relatively quickly in short order after the first there was a sense initially of waste that everything that they'd done from the beginning of the, the first change and the second change that superseded it had been a waste and by the time that they'd finished the accomplishment section I think there was a sense that actually that wasn't waste and that there was so much to take forward. But there were things that, that wouldn't be there going forward. So we spent a little bit of time just talking about the loss and what would help them to let go. Thank you, Sally, for a wonderful conversation and for illustrating so brilliantly how useful this work is to teams in transition. Thank you. Thanks for making it available. The article that led Sally to us may well have led you here too. If not, though, and you haven't read it yet and you'd like to, you can find it at endingsforbeginnings.co.uk.
There you will also find further resources, including the exercises that worked so powerfully for Sally. This is Endings for Beginnings. Still to come. I love ritual, not because I think it has any magical qualities to it. I think ritual is a social force of nature and a symbolic force of nature. If my heart could do my thinking and my head begin to feel, I would look upon the world anew and know what's truly real. Words from Van Morrison's song, I Forgot That Love Existed. Reality, our first pillar, is how things actually are, as opposed to an idealistic, perhaps, view of them. The reality for many sectors of the business world in the last 18 months has been one of ongoing change, transition and endings. And this has been particularly true both for the hospitality and volunteering sectors. Rosie Ferguson works across both those sectors. She has been the chief executive of the House of St Barnabas since September 2019. It is a social enterprise members club which exists to break the cycle of homelessness. And we first met Rosie in her role as the chair of Akivo, the network for civil society leaders. When we sat down with Rosie to talk about endings, we began by talking about the question of when different people in an organisation experience different realities at different times. The session that, that you, Lizzie and Alison, ran on Endings and Beginnings, I think, was a really helpful way to, to support chief execs to reflect on the change that they were leading through and to focus on what they were leaving behind as well as as well as what was ahead of them. Because I think when, when you're in relentless change, particularly when you're leading it, you always have to be kind of a few, a few steps, a few months, a few phases ahead of everybody else. But that does mean that by the time, you know, I, I've found uh, certainly as a chief exec, if you're, if you're doing something like planning a big redundancy or a big change process, or you do go through the mourning and grief and you, you do go through the pain of change but you just do it three months ahead of everybody else because you know what's coming up and by the time everyone else is at that stage you're kind of through it and you can actually be quite distanced from it because you've got so used to it and I think actually thinking about actually how you lead other people through change who are operating at a different pace and timetable to your own beginnings and endings um, is really interesting. So yeah, I think there was, um, it certainly resonated with, with the Kivo members in terms of paying attention to some of the, the looking back as well as the, as the looking forward. I guess the more obvious endings, the furloughs, the redundancies, the death and illness of colleagues, you know, people have been through so much and we're really curious too, though, what, what are the perhaps less obvious endings and beginnings that you've noticed that your colleagues have been leading their organisations through or have maybe needed to pay perhaps a bit of attention to for themselves in order to be present, available? Some of the more subtle endings, I think, are things like changes in language, changes in cultural behaviours and norms, and some of those things that don't necessarily, that actually new language can come in and new ways of doing things can come in, and things, the culture, change, culture has changed in organisations as a result of the way people have needed to be working, whether they're operating at home uh, or whether they're operating in person in a COVID context. Um, and and so I think some of those things, maybe there's been a lot of focus on what's new, but actually not necessarily on on actually saying these things are now lost or gone or over and we will not be going back to doing some of these things the way we used to. And I think, yeah, I think some of that stuff, well, I'm certainly working through some of those things now. Now the big change, hopefully we're kind of through the big change at the house, but actually there are some of the smaller things that will not go back to the way they were. And I think that hasn't necessarily lodged yet and there's a bit of work still to do there. And how might you approach that, Rosie? How do you think, for example, the pillars might be useful? Um, I mean, I think for me, the most useful one of the pillars is the reality, the naming it, and just making sure that you're that you're acknowledging it because what that also does is is yes of course the others the emotions the accomplishment the ritual um we can do deliberately by but by but by naming the reality you can also give permission and space for other people to do those other things for themselves mm. if you you know it's kind of actually everything because i think also what's interesting is you know i came into the house just before the pandemic i started this role so i wasn't actually part of the old world really 
So actually there's something, and we've had a lot of new starters join through the pandemic who weren't. So actually there are a group of staff, and I'm sure this will be a case in many organisations, and I've experienced it in other places, who are very attached to the way things used to be done. And and actually giving space for those people to to kind of, uh, that it's not necessarily appropriate for their ritual and kind of emotional support to be facilitated by somebody who wasn't part of that. So kind of, I think there's something about who's, who, whose ending is it, and therefore who's the best person to lead through some of these, some of these things. And I'm aware that, you know, it can be tempting as a chief executive to try and lead everything, but actually, who's the best person to support this process and to do this naming? And then I guess as a leader, to think about how do you, yeah, how do you kind of facilitate and encourage other people to take responsibility for for different endings in different ways. You just said something absolutely brilliant, Rosie, in terms of whose who's ending is it? And what you said a minute ago actually was who, whose beginning is it when you're talking about yeah. being a leader and being three months ahead and knowing stuff before anybody else and going through your grief cycle earlier. And there's something so deeply respectful about what you said, acknowledging of the reality of actually getting all the way down to that we've got new starters that have got no, no attachment to the old and then we've got people that actually that that grieving that letting go of those norms and cultures is really important and then then your role as as the leader whose ending is it that's a hugely important statement you just made mm. and in there for me there's the reminder as well that the reality in the busyness we we tend to think in titles and headlines and yeah. and there there isn't the time and the pause to you know separate all those different strands of that out and the, and look for the nuance and in what those different endings and beginnings that people might be experiencing are and I it's got me really thinking about how both as facilitators of this process and as leaders we can offer those questions that enable people to perhaps land on the thing that's been getting in their way without even mm. realising it has. Mm. Rosie, as we said at the beginning, with roles in both hospitality and the voluntary sector, for you to have given time and your valuable insights today and share them with us, we are truly, truly grateful. So thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to a, a lovely day up in London in the house. Thank you, Rosie, for yeah. your time. Thanks very much. Rosie and Sally have highlighted something important to do with time. It's easy to drop this kind of work down the priority list because either consciously or unconsciously, there's a fear it will be difficult and take too long. It's why it's been so good to hear from them how leaders and teams are gaining so much value from the work and illustrating how worthwhile the investment of that time is. Using the pillars is also a way of really making the most of the time you have. There is no leader that we work with who is flush for time. Our motivation in offering the pillars is to make available a toolkit which is safe and structured and actually time-bound. Really slowing down to honour what has ended actually helps accelerate the progress of what comes next. Look on every exit as being an entrance somewhere else. From Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Our fourth pillar, ritual, may appear more obvious than others when talking about endings, but we've found in our work it's often not done well. Our next guest, Shoshana Boyd-Gelfand, is a name you may be familiar with through her work on BBC Radio's Pause for Thought and Something Understood. Shoshana is the Director of Leadership and Learning for the Pears Foundation, a philanthropic organisation who work with, amongst others, the Duke of Edinburgh Award Scheme, and the National Holocaust Centre. Shoshana was ordained as a rabbi in 1993 and worked in organisational development in the UK and USA and is also a former CEO. So there was no one better qualified for us to have breadth and depth of conversation with on the subject of ritual and indeed all of the pillars. Shoshana has shared our work on Endings for Beginnings with the organisations she works with and we began our conversation by asking her about how she first came to be connected to our work. The director of the foundation, Amy Breyer, experienced actually just a, a taster of something that you did at a, an ACF conference. Um, and as soon as she told me about it, we both knew that this was the missing piece for so many of the organizations that we work with, um, particularly ones 
that are led by passionate founders. Um, you know, a lot of people found a charity for very, very good reasons. Um, they have a personal investment in it. They really want to change the world. But that investment sometimes makes it almost impossible to do transitions because they, they lose a piece of themselves. They've put so much into the organization. And so when we heard about this concept that you have of endings for beginnings, of really attending to those endings, of doing them in a thoughtful, intentional way, that resonated for us as something that would really um, help the organizations we work with. I think we didn't quite appreciate how much it was going to help us as well in our own work um, and, and uh, not just the organizations. Fascinated what you said about that missing piece. Can you tell us more about what you were seeing as missing? In particular, my role at the foundation was helping start up charities. And we put so much thoughtfulness into um, how to help them write a strategic plan and how to help them build a board and how to help them create a website and a brand and their programming and all of these amazing bits that you have to get in place in order for a charity to be functional. And it just, it was, it was like a, a lightning bolt hit me. Um, I should know better, right? I'm a rabbi. I know about how important it is to do endings well. Um, but I hadn't put that same amount of thought into the transitions that happen. And it's not just when a charity comes to an end. I mean, sometimes you do wind up a charity because its mission has been achieved. Um, but it's, it's the transitions that happen as you move from a startup to a second stage to a more established type of charity. Each of those has an ending. I mean, it's also a beginning. Um, but unless you do that ending well of saying, you know what, we're no longer a startup where the three of us roll up our sleeves and we are, you know, chief exec and, you know, also the person who sets up the chairs. There is a loss that happens when you move from that to an organization that has, you know, 30 people and you can't have the same intimacy and the same kind of sense of solidarity. You have to do it differently. I had not quite appreciated that I needed to help people go through that morning stage of saying, you know what, it's not just the three of us sitting in the garage um, dreaming up this charity. It's us moving on to the next stage, but that's a loss also. Um, and so the, the, the sort of four stages that you broke that down into, I think was so helpful in, in helping these startup charities move on to a stage where it's almost like when your, your kid goes off to, you know, out into the world on their own. Um, there's a joy in that, but it, there's a bittersweetness and you have to acknowledge that bittersweetness in order to really help them be independent and fly on their own. That's so true, isn't it? That so much of this is two sides of the same coin, the, 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 the bitterness and the, the joy and that sense of actually we're being successful. And so often when Lizzie and I talk about this work, we're thinking about um, painful endings, but actually it's also the success of, as you say, we are no longer a startup. But there is loss in that intimacy, as you say, for moving on to the next stage. Yeah, I had one organisation I was working with that was so successful here in the UK that it went global. And Gosh. I mean, what better validation could you have than to say, actually, the model that we've created and the good that we're doing in this country could be replicated in other places? And the chief exec couldn't figure out why she was so ambivalent about that, because she was getting such positive feedback from everyone who was taking it on. And then she realized it wasn't her baby anymore. And she had lost control over it. And that other countries were adapting it, rightly so, for their needs. But it wasn't hers anymore. And helping her to think through that in terms of loss um, is what allowed her to then embrace the joy of no, it's not mine, but it's out there in the world and it doesn't have to be mine and it's going to outlast me. And that was where she got the deep satisfaction. 
ambivalence when we talk about it's entangled in the middle between the ending and the loss ambivalence is such a useful signal if anybody ever talks about being ambivalent it's such a useful signal there's something entangled that needs to be worked through in order to as you say fly and actually really say oh my goodness my charity is global I really have succeeded but in a completely different way Shoshana when you early in what you said you talked about being more intentional because for me I think that's 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 what fills the space of that ambivalence or fills the space when either because we're moving at pace or perhaps because we don't have the confidence to go towards some of this stuff, we are less intentional. The moment passes. And I think that's what we were trying to do, Ali, wasn't it? Was to kind of create mm. some structure when we've noticed that there's a there's a space there that we've missed to create some structure to give people the the confidence and that sort of handrail we keep talking about to go towards those conversations. That's really interesting. I'm, I'm, I hadn't quite thought about it this way, of, of the structure that you're putting there is, it mirrors the structure of a startup, right? And, and quite often when somebody comes to me with an idea, they are ready to run, right? They, they need this to happen yesterday because the world needs it and it's going to make things better. And I have to slow them down. And I have to say, um, I don't want to dampen your enthusiasm or your excitement, but let's be a bit more intentional about this. Let's get our ducks in a row because that's what's going to allow you to succeed with this startup. And you're doing the same thing. You're sort of saying, um, it, maybe it's not the enthusiasm that's driving the, um, the speed that somebody wants to run at. It's actually avoiding the pain of the loss that is perhaps driving the speed of, or, or I'm done with this, I just need to move on. And you're doing that same thing of saying, no, wait, let's do this slowly and intentionally because that's what's going to lead us to a better ending. Um, but, but in both of those cases, it's interesting. You, it, it's almost like um, you know, holding the reins a bit and slowing the process down so that someone can actually experience it and doing it in that intentional way. You can be intentional quickly or slowly, but in order to be intentional, in my experience, you have to create a space for it. It doesn't just happen. You know, sometimes our bodies force us to. There's no medical thing called a nervous breakdown. A nervous breakdown is, <laughs> is your body sort of saying, you need to stop and create some space. And if you won't do it intentionally, I will intentionally do it for you. So that, and, and I think that's what, what good rituals do, right? They force you to create a space for certain thoughts and feelings and experiences to, to happen. And if you speed that up too much, you don't rush through a ritual. You know, even if you know, okay, we're going to light this candle. Okay, we can do this quickly and get it over with, right? No. You have to light the candle and give it time if you want the ritual to work. So I, I don't know whether you can speed up a, a, these kinds of things. I guess I think you can do more in an amount of time than people perhaps realise when you work with intention and when you have a conversation with intention. And you're absolutely right. I think one of the things that Ali and I love to do, and in fact, so often the feedback is hopefully wonderful feedback about the work. But so often the feedback also is it was great to have the space and time. And what we provide is some structure to that. Well, and I'm also just sort of I'm, I'm picturing um, a, almost like a pressure cooker. Yeah. Right. Where where if you have a strong enough container, you can turn up the heat and you can get things cooked, you know, more quickly. Right. Um, so but it has to be a strong container. And that's what a good coach can do. That's what a good structure can do. That's what a good ritual can do, is provide a stronger container so that you can, in a sense, do the work more intentionally, but more intensively as well. And you're right, that can speed it up. You can get a lot more packed in when that container is strong. I think that's so true. And I think what you said earlier on, Shoshana, about um, often we speed up because we're running away from avoiding the pain is actually with the safety and the structure and that lovely container that you've described, it's, we're able to take a look at the pain without facing fully into it to actually acknowledge that it's there 
so that we can then actually turn and make some different choices. So in terms of that space, we create our way through that space with individuals and organisations comes in the form of those four pillars of reality, emotions, accomplishments and ritual. You've mentioned ritual as a really important part of that process already. What is it that you believe makes ritual so important in so many settings? And also what particularly would a greater presence of ritual bring to our working lives, do you think? I love ritual, not because I think it has any magical qualities to it. It's no more magical than, than you know, gravity or other forces of nature. I think that, that ritual is a social force of nature and a symbolic force of nature. Um, so it, it's not like there's something coming from the outside that makes it happen, but it, it creates that container. And particularly if it's a ritual that you've seen or participated in, if there's some sort of script and some sort of ritual that you know has been successful for other people to do that transition, you can lean into that and you can let go of having to construct that for yourself and let the ritual carry you through. Now that doesn't mean you can't personalize it, of course you can, but um, you know that's why we do a, a farewell do for people, right? Now you can do a farewell do in a pub, you can do a farewell do out in a field somewhere, you can do a farewell do you know, at the beach um, or in the office. You, you can change the setting around, but you know what the elements of that farewell do are going to be. There's going to be some sort of um, symbolic gift that is presented. There's going to be um, words of celebration. Why is that the script? because we know it works. We know that that is something that has the elements that are necessary in order for people to do good transitions. There's, oh, there's so much I love about what you've just said, Shoshana, and leaning into the ritual. That reminder for, for leaders that those rituals are there for so many reasons that serve so many people well. And I'm really reminded too of how important it is if you are not going to have the ritual or you're going to change the ritual in some way people need to know that you know Alice and I have talked many times and talked with people who have experienced the pain of not having the same ritual as everyone else had it's not about the gift as you say it's it's about that moment in time where that person makes that transition and people make that transition alongside them and when that is changed or missing in some way, you know, it runs really deep for people and it leaves the organisational ripples of that. Well, and it happens on, on both sides. Um, I'm thinking of a personal time when I, I was um, leaving an organisation and, um, and, and it was a bit of a fraught ending. Um, and, uh, and, and, and neither of us were terribly happy about it. But I was, I, I was um, you know, in a congregation, I was a rabbi, and, um, and there were a lot of innocent people, right, who hadn't been part of that decision. And even though it was the right thing for me to leave, um, I really didn't feel like going and having a big goodbye and farewell with the congregation. And possibly some of the, the leadership of the community weren't so keen on, on investing in that either. And we had to sit down and be grown-ups about it. And we had to say, you know what? We need to go through the motions of this for the good of the community. Because if we don't go through the motions and give me a chance to say goodbye to the community and to be grateful for everything that I've learned here and for the community to be grateful to me for everything that I've contributed, if we, if we don't go through that ritual, then... What we know, and there's evidence of this, is, um, is that the community won't be as open with a new rabbi. So when you try to recruit a new rabbi, some poor innocent person's gonna walk in here ready to go, and the community is going to feel ambivalent about embracing this person because they didn't get to say a proper goodbye to me. So we need to stage this ritual even though we don't feel like it. And, um, and it was, it was hard to do. And, and I think it's even harder when one side really wants the ritual and the other side doesn't. 
to sit down and say, we need to do this for the good of the organizational culture, for the good of all the stakeholders. And ultimately, it was also, when I look back on it, I realized it was good for me. It's what allowed me to maintain relationships with some of the people I wanted to maintain relationships with. And had I just disappeared, I, that would have been awkward. Wonderful. I think there's something in that. It's back to the slowing down and pausing that if we're wrapped up with our own reality of the ending and our own emotion of the ending, then sometimes we forget to look at that wider system that is going to be impacted long after you've gone. Um, it's just such a beautiful example, Shoshana, of actually how we need to take account of everything having a place in this, every sense of belonging for everybody both of those that are left behind and those that are then trying to move into that new beginning. And I think it's one of the things that has been one of the, the, the hidden um, challenges of COVID is that um, our rituals have been disrupted. The way we usually do transitions, we can try and adapt them on Zoom, but they don't function the way they should function. So we've lost that important tool and it's very difficult to gather people and to get everyone together to do that kind of ritual. So I find now that I've started to talk to people again, I've missed chapters of what's happened in their organization or in their life. And we haven't been able to experience something communally. Um, and that's going to be one of the challenges in, in you know, uh, as we start to pull people back together is creating rituals, I would say, that allow them to articulate what their experience has been so we can start to feel like communities again, whether that's a community in the workplace or, uh, or extended families or um, other kinds of institutions. We have not been doing shared rituals. You know, whether your office ritual is to have, you know, Pizza Tuesday, together where people come together and have pizza but all the stuff that happened around that ordering of pizza together has been missed or maybe some people have experienced it and others haven't so how do we recreate some of those rituals as we move into hybrid working i think that's um, i anticipate you're going to be seeing quite a bit of that and letting us know your wisdom on it many of the conversations we have and and actually of course a lot of the work we do we are in that moment with the people that we're working with but what's really important to us is that the work has impact beyond the room. What impact have you seen or perhaps what impact do you anticipate that the work will have in the future? I can't emphasise enough how important I think this work is. It's the bedrock, I would say, of um, helping people do transitions well. And we live in a world now where we're constantly doing transitions so everything that someone learns in terms of using the four pillars as this structure to navigate a transition, if you learn how to do it, it's, it's like a muscle, right? You, you, it becomes strong because you've practiced it as you're doing a transition at work. But then you go home and you watch your kid go from you know, primary school to secondary school and you know what? It's the same muscle that you're using in order to create those kinds of rituals and deal with the ambivalent feelings and messy emotions that you have around that. And guess what? It's also the same set of principles that you go through when, you know, sadly a loved one dies, right? And you're able to get to a point where you deal with the messy emotions there and are able to celebrate the life that they had. So I, I, this is the bread and butter of what it is to be human, to get better at doing these kinds of transitions. Um, if I pull it back into an organizational perspective, I've seen a real um, shift in organizational life um, around M&E, measuring impact and, and doing evaluation. And now most responsible funders will not fund a project unless it has, say, 10% of its budget, right, dedicated to M&E. That's just become a standard part of a project budget. Well, I'd love to see this as part of, 
the standard way that we think about any sort of organizational change or human development and change. That we attend to this and it becomes, like it doesn't have to be a budget line, but it has to be part of the organizational plan or the individual development plan of how am I going to set aside enough time and enough energy and enough space and a strong enough container to continue to build this muscle because that's what's going to allow us to have a stronger future, both as individuals and as larger human society. Thank you so, so much. It's been such a rich conversation. We learned so much from you and with you um, and look forward to the next one. Likewise, and thank you to the two of you for the work you do and for the difference that you make. Progress is impossible without change, and those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. A quote from playwright and critic George Bernard Shaw. Our experience as practitioners and learners has repeatedly shown us that paying attention to endings and transitions as part of Brighter and Better Beginnings really matters. As we heard from Sally and her team, it matters to the individual who becomes released from thoughts and feelings they felt stuck in, often without really knowing why, and able to turn to the future with more energy, clarity, optimism and truly holding and using what they have learned. It matters to relationships, summed up so well by Shoshana. Working through the four pillars has not only given people a way of voicing and settling things that they have felt themselves, but also, importantly, airing things that they have not previously fully articulated and acknowledged in their working relationships. We have heard stories of how valuable having the four pillars to structure a conversation has been. It's given people a handrail through those conversations that otherwise felt too daunting and too difficult. It has created some psychological safety. And as Rosie explained, this matters to organisations. It matters because we spend a lot of time at work. And when our well-being is improved, not only is that better for performance and ultimately progress and profit, it's contributing to a better world of work for all of us. It's been wonderful talking with each other and our guests today. We hope you found it interesting, found it useful and have some insights into conversations you might want to start yourselves. If you'd like to talk to us about working with you and your organisation or to book us for a keynote presentation, speech or workshop, you can find us both on LinkedIn. Please do take a look at endingsforbeginnings.co.uk where you'll find our original article and the resources we've talked about today. Our first podcast is also there and another episode where we have an extraordinary conversation with fellow Endings activist Iona Lawrence, co-founder of the Stewarding Loss Project and former director of the Joe Cox Foundation. And please do follow where you downloaded this podcast to make sure you receive future episodes. This has been Endings for Beginnings. The podcast to help leaders begin planning for a better ending. Endings are generally just a Thursday night pint or a curry and then start Monday and this was a much deeper exercise. I'd love to see this as part of the standard way that we think about any sort of organizational change or human development and change. I'm Alison Lucas. I'm Lizzie Bentley-Bowers. And this is the end of the podcast. But we hope it's just the beginning for you.